Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. You're really going to enjoy today's Beeson Podcast. I have two of my colleagues here at Beeson Divinity School on our faculty to talk with. Dr. Ken Matthews has been a member of our faculty almost from the beginning, since 1989. He's a native of Texas. He has uh, degrees from Dallas Theological Seminary and the University of Michigan, an Old Testament professor, a Hebrew expert. And Dr. Sidney Park. Sidney is a native of South Korea. She holds degrees from the University of Chicago, Fuller Theological Seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and the University of Aberdeen, where she did her Ph.D. in New Testament studies. So I'm talking to an Old Testament and a New Testament member of our Divinity School faculty. And why am I talking to both of them today? They are the authors of a brand new book that I want you to be aware of. We're going to talk about it. It's called The Post-Racial Church, A Biblical Framework for Multi-Ethnic Reconciliation. So, Ken and Sydney, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. George. I'm going to begin by asking you to each say just a little bit about your own background, biography, and what led you to this particular subject to write about and think about. So, Sydney, we'll start with you. Well, I immigrated to the States in 71, so I was eight years old. My early experiences of trying to acclimate to United States culture was difficult, and um, I, I had a lot of issues, racial issues, that I encountered all throughout my childhood, high school, college. And this book is just simply to tell a story that after a Christian conversion, that racial enmity ought to disappear, that whatever um, experiences that we accrue in our lives, it becomes changed dramatically by the cross. And it, it made me rethink how the church ought to respond to the racial tensions that we still have today. I think that I missed the civil rights movement. I must have been asleep mm-hmm. because in the 1950s and 1960s, I did not sense that that civil rights movement, that upheaval in our society, impacted me very much. I do have some memories. I recall being in my grandmother's home in 1963 with the March on Washington, led by, of course, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., And I remember that she said in a fearful tone, which I had not thought to be a fear before, afraid before, she said, oh, they're going to take over the whole world. And, of course, she was referring to the black community. So those kinds of memories stick out in my mind. But for the most part, I think I was rather insulated. When I came to Birmingham, as we all know, Birmingham was a flashpoint for that movement, and I have thought about the movement and its importance. What led me to pursue this book was what I call the Larry King Phenomenon. The Larry King Phenomenon, for those who may not know, Larry King has for many years been a talk uh, show host, radio and also on CNN. 
and he would have a variety of guests through the years, many of which he would talk about civil matters, cultural matters, and they would ground it in uh, just being a civilized person as opposed to the biblical expectation. And what I was seeing was that the younger generation has not really seen that civil rights is grounded in the biblical picture. And they are spouting more of what occurred in the Enlightenment of the uh, 18th and 17th centuries. So that's what motivated me to think through this. Now, I want to ask you the title of this book, The Post-Racial Church. What does that mean, post-racial? Well, I think it's obvious to everybody in our culture that we do divide up along racial lines. And the post-racial church means to me that race is no longer an issue when it comes to worship and our identity, that our worship and our identity is clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ, which transcends any race or background that we may have. Along these lines, I have attended some racially unified services, and just what we mean by post-racial or multi-ethnic worship depends on how you define that, and I've thought a good deal about that. What does that mean? Does that mean that you have one or two or three token other (laughs) kinds of uh, racial representation? Does that mean that you have leadership that would be a race different than than your own? What do we mean exactly by that? So that's that's a part of what that means to me. Sydney, any thoughts about that? It's a catchy title, one that I did not think of myself, but uh, it was given to us by Craigle. We liked it almost immediately in that it is a trendy title that most young generations, current generations can relate to. It's interesting because what we're trying to say is that it's not so much that the modern-day church is post-racial church, but actually the church as we see it in Scripture is a post-racial church. Kind of bringing that relevance so that it's not divorced through time, but the portrait that we see in Acts, um, what Jesus does right there, that is the post-racial church. You mentioned Kriegel. By the way, for our listeners, Kriegel is the publisher of this book. Uh, they brought it out in a wonderful paperback edition with a lively color. It's hard for me to describe on the podcast, but it is kind of postmodern. It does yes. give that feeling of mm-hmm. uh, being post-something, and so mm-hmm. it's, it's quite engaging, quite interesting. Now, you mentioned, Sydney, that this is a biblical vision that you're trying to recapture and articulate, and yet in the Bible, isn't it true that race does or ethnicity in some way does play a rather significant role in the Old Testament, for example? Uh, the Jews were forbidden to intermarry with people outside the community of Israel. And we know that in the American South, intermarriage was a big issue between African Americans and whites. Talk a little bit about that biblical sanction and also how it might be relevant today. Well, I think that most people, when they think of those prohibitions against, say, intermarriage or certain limitations in the way in which the Israelites interacted with what I call the other ites, there's a misunderstanding. That was another motivation I had for writing this book. 
Most people probably think it has to do with ethnicity, xenophobia, some kind of fear of other people groups. But there is a very significant underlying theological reason why God set up these kinds of prohibitions in intermarriage with others. First of all, it was not absolute. There is intermarriage taking place in the Old Testament among the uh, Israelites and their neighbors. But uh, the reason why we have this prohibition is not because of ethnicity or intellect or ability or anything of that sort. It's because of the theology that was central to Israel's own identity. There was uh, the temptation, maybe even we can say the propensity, to assimilate the gods and the and the culture of those who entered from outside in this uh, marriage arrangement. So what was at uh, work here, especially when you read the book of Judges, is that intermarriage may well mean that the unique faith of Israel given to the one supreme God, his creator of heaven and earth, would be uh, betrayed on the part of the people. So it's really a, a religious issue at the heart of the matter. Turning to the New Testament, Sydney, what about the prodigal son? You deal with that story mm-hmm. here in the book, and of course it's a major uh, metaphor for mm-hmm. the love of God, the grace of God, forgiveness, but what does it have to do with racial reconciliation? I chose the story not because it immediately spoke of racial relations or ethnic relations in Jesus' time, but I thought if we dug just a little deeper that it could be relevant. And the primary issue is that right in the beginning of that story, there is a little statement that the Pharisees were offended that Jesus spent so much time in eating and fellowshipping with the sinners. And here it becomes necessary to identify what a sinner might mean. And basically, uh, if we take the definition of sinner from the prodigal son, then it is someone who has cut off all ties with God the Father, if we see Mm. the Father as God, and has decided to run his own life. Now, that may immediately indicate that this is a Jewish person who has um, abdicated his covenant rights and decided to walk in the ways of sinner. But I would still say that within the framework of that definition that you could possibly see Gentiles. Gentiles are the ones who do not know God, who have turned away from God and rejected his ways. So I can make that kind of a link. Yeah. And if you were if you were going to preach the prodigal son... Mm-hmm. Uh, How would you bring out that aspect that you just referred to in terms of the reconciling love of God that goes beyond ethnicity and racial identity? I think I would point to our tendency with the modern-day church to stay within our comfort groups and not really reach out to groups that are outside of what what is familiar to us. And, you know, you began uh, by referring to that Luke 15, 1 verse, this Mm -hmm. man receives sinners and eats with them. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me that the question of with whom you eat is a really important question. That's where the Mm -hmm. civil rights movement in our country really began in the South, at lunch counters. Mm -hmm. Uh, Who can eat a sandwich with you? It seems to me that that has something to say about who we recognize as our Mm -hmm. 
fellow brother and sister in mm-hmm. a broader sense. I use a story from Aberdeen, a strange encounter that I had um, when it was a Korean fellowship. We were uh, celebrating Korean Harvest Festival and two strays, I guess, hobos walked in and uh, they had dreadlocks and they were dirty. And, you know, one of the elders was was decidedly offended by mm. the fact that they, it wasn't so much that they asked for food. We were willing to give them our food, but that they were eating in the same room, mm. that it ruined mm. his appetite. And this is a clear example of how we can reflect on the prodigal son, uh, the reception that that prodigal son receives from the father, and um, and how oftentimes we, we take on the role of the older son. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was going to add that in the Old Testament, we do have food laws. Mm-hmm. And the food laws were designed to distinguish the Hebrew people from their neighbors. If you eat three times a day, then every time you sit to eat... As a Hebrew person, you're going to be reminded that they are specially distinguished from all the nations by virtue of simply their diet and a whole range of other everyday activities and traditions. So, for example, with the prodigal son, what was his diet? It was a rich diet, and then he became (laughs) a person dependent upon the pigs, which would be taboo, Mm. of course. So he he was the bottom of the bottom. When it comes to table fellowship, we're talking about eating. I'd be interested in hearing from Sydney a bit more about what she means in her portion of the book about table fellowship. And then what I think of when I think firstly of table fellowship and how I deal with that. I think what I mean by table fellowship is that with Jesus Christ, the food laws become abolished. Uh, they're no longer relevant. And that is clear from reading um, Acts 15 and what Paul has to say throughout his letters. Um, it wasn't Galatians 2 precisely over that question, you know, the, the, the problem in Antioch about with whom you eat and wanting to go back under the law? Yes. Precisely so. Mm-hmm. And it becomes critical, uh, for Paul at least, and, and others, uh, they will say that this is no longer a barrier to fellowship, mm-hmm. that we can eat together. We need to be sensitive to the other, um, whether that is from the Gentile perspective or the Jewish perspective, but um, I think it's in Romans, I, I believe I dealt with that, where he, he, he's trying to encourage both sides to be considerate of the sensitivities that uh, the other might have. Mm-hmm. And, but it's not to exclude anybody from that table of fellowship, but to draw everyone together. When I was thinking of table fellowship, I was contrasting it with that of good old Southern hospitality. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think we believe that if we invite uh, minorities um, of the majority person here, that uh, we've had table fellowship. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's southern hospitality or hospitality by people across our Western culture, especially in the Middle East, Mm -hmm. has a uh, a depth about it, but not uh, nearly so because also table fellowship speaks to me as the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. 
And that's You're talking what, about communion yes, again, right? Yes, and that's that's what I wanted to say in one of the chapters about God's welcome to us all, and that there is a hospitality that is far deeper than just simply niceties mm-hmm. of inviting people and being nice to one another. And, of course, that's uh, civility, and I enjoy civility. But what we're talking about here is a depth of relationship that transcends our ethnicity and our language and our cultural background. And that uh, depth is rooted and grounded in the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Apostle John speaks of that in his first letter where he speaks of how we have fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and how we've been brought into that fellowship with the Lord God. It is rather remarkable then, if you pause and reflect upon it, that we would ever have any difficulty with one another at the human level if in our Christian commitment we are in fellowship with the same God and with the same Lord Jesus Christ, then there should be a unity in our fellowship. You bring in communion, but there's another text that's well known in the New Testament where it seems like our unity in Christ is very much rooted and grounded in baptism. This is, of course, Galatians 3, maybe the most famous of all the texts from the Apostle Paul on this theme. You're baptized into Christ. You've put on Christ. And he says, Therefore, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. You belong to one another as brothers and sisters in this communion that is grounded in the baptism we have received in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'd like for uh, you all to comment uh, about that text. Uh, No longer slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile. What does that mean when it comes to the topic of your book about the post-racial church? I think maybe we should put that question to you, seeing how, Timothy, you wrote a commentary <laughs> on this <Likely>. book. <laughs> now, wait a minute. I'm asking the question. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the a, little, a little trickery. He wants to see if we're orthodox yeah. or not. Well, you know, what I have in mind partly stems from a book I wrote about William Carey, this great missionary to India. And he began to preach the gospel. Folks were becoming Christians. And yet he had a rule that he would not baptize these new converts until they were willing to come together at a common meal. And, of course, then also after baptism to share in the Lord's Supper together. And the reason why, of course, some of them wouldn't is because it would mean breaking caste. And to eat with someone who was of a lower caste than you was socially taboo. So cares that if you're really going to be a Christian, if you're really going to be a part of the body of Christ, you've got to eat at the same table. You've got to share the same meal. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you're not going to go through the waters of baptism until you're willing to take that step. And it seems to me that was a kind of practical exegesis, mm-hmm. if you can put it that way, mm-hmm. of Paul's admonition in Galatians chapter 3. And he also speaks to this in Ephesians 4, where he speaks of the bond of peace. And then he goes on to say in one verse, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so we we have to think beyond our customs and culture as to what is more important. There is diversity. We started the whole discussion about passages that speak of unity. 
But those, that unity, for example, when it comes to Paul's letters, he recognized Jews are Jews, Gentiles are Gentiles. It's not that we become altogether homogenous. Or in the book of Revelation, it talks about every tribe, every language, and so forth. Those distinctions are maintained, but we have a greater unity. So when I think of those classic differentiations in Galatians about slave and free and so forth, that, in Paul's mind, is still there, whether you're a slave or a free person, but is not central to our identity and cannot serve as an appropriate platform for achieving uh, the bond of peace that Paul has in mind. From what you've just said about table fellowship and um, moving on to this passage in Galatians, I think one of the issues that we wanted to address, at least I wanted to address, was this superficial understanding of what it means to be in the family of God. Ken talked about civility and nicety as as a reflection of what we do in the modern-day church, maybe. That, that might be an indication of the fact that we're saved. There is nothing in Scripture to indicate that or support that view. It, we're never talking about just a superficial niceties. This is what we do in the modern day, but getting to understanding what table fellowship actually means, table fellowship would have meant kinship, family members. Now you belong. Now we are one family. At least I think that's the way Luke is communicating that. And it ties very nicely with Galatians. The fact that what it means to be one body, one one member, uh, and, and what it means to be u- united is based on the work of God in Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and our belief in that. It is not based on color or ethnicity or back then it was slaves and free. Here today it's the poor and the rich Mm. yeah i think that the multicultural has got to be a reflex of what's uh, our future what is going to be the nature of our heavenly abode little heaven here on earth thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven now how are we going to reflect that kind of welcome and inclusion that god had and was illustrated quite well by our, our Lord during his earthly sojourn. How are we going to do that? To me, that is where the multi-ethnic church can say so much to our culture. And we need to think more about two hurdles that I see that we have to overcome in achieving a multi-ethnic worship would be, first of all, language. We've got language differences, and we're going to have to overcome that. Do you mean language in the sense of a different language or a different idiom or what? Different languages. So if you have people who are Latino, Chinese, and uh, Native American Indians, how are we going to have worship services? Because typically you could have one dominant language in a worship service. And then occasionally you would bring in something along the lines of maybe reading scripture in different languages or something of that sort. That is very much a big problem, the language issue. 
Well, Ken, I dealt with that towards the end there, and I suggested the solution is to hire a translator. <laughs> Find a translator who is fluent in both languages and get the earpieces to go along, and uh, maybe you can switch it out, actually have a sermon given in Spanish, and then translate that to English. They do this at the United Nations, yes, don't they? Yes, so. and that, that's <laughs> exactly what they did at Cape Town. Now, Cape Town, say what Cape Town was for our listeners. Cape Town was where the Lausanne movement recently met exactly last year, one year ago, and um, over 200 countries were represented. Worship was uh, all multi-ethnic. Messages were obviously, the dominant messages were in English, but they were translated. Uh, we had many translators, and you know, the, the language was not a barrier for genuine Worship under the name of Christ. I want to ask you all a hard question. Uh, these have all been easy questions. This is a hard <laughs> okay. question. Aren't what you're trying to do in this book uh, is just sort of really homogenize everything? Uh, I mean, you, you pay lip service to these distinctions, but I mean, I've talked to a lot of people who say, we're a Hispanic church. We're an African-American church. We have a tradition. We have an idiom. Uh, we have a liturgy. And we don't want to kind of be forced all to mix and mingle together. Hmm. Let us alone. Let us worship God in our own way. And we'll be friendly with everybody. Aren't you trying to kind of disrespect that sense of idiom a little bit in your approach? Well, it reminds me of a conversation I had with a pastor when I was in Princeton working on this book and during a sabbatical. We were sharing with one another what we were up to, and he indicated that he had gone the route of a multi-ethnic church. There he pastored and just outside Princeton. And he said actually their ministry was not as effective. He said that the the hurdles were such, language and some worship style, worship style is another major hurdle, that he thought that they could be more effective in evangelism if they catered to one particular social group, ethnic group. I think that's part of the discussion and debate now. Do we dilute or somehow restrict our our witness? I'm going to push on that just a little bit and say we really need to read Revelation to gain a better understanding of that. Where are we headed? Uh, what, do we, what do we mean when we hope for being in that new heaven, new earth, uh, and that perfect communion with God? It always envisions a multi-ethnic group, all peoples. God is Lord of everyone. And at the same time, their diversity is never uh, diminished. And what will be interesting is that within Revelation, the, one of the dominant themes is testimony. Jesus uh, delivers a message to the seven churches for them to be faithful consistently. That is the message, to remain faithful. His people need to remain uh, faithful to the gospel message, to who Jesus Christ is, their belief in God, in spite of horrific difficulties, in, in spite of persecution. And I think this is going to tie in back with Galatians again. It's not just the Lord's Supper and baptism, but it will be our unity in suffering together for the cause of Christ. Mm. I think it will require some sacrifice on our part, which is, of course, precisely what our Lord exhibited so perfectly, is his willing to condescend to sacrifice in so many 
ways to bring salvation to us and through his atoning death. And when it comes to those two things or hurdles that I've spoken of, language and worship style, mm-hmm. we're going to have to be willing to make some sacrifices because it's pretty normal, I would think, to mm-hmm. want the service to be in your own native language and that you want the leadership to be the same color you are mm-hmm. and that the worship style best suits your interests. But we're going to have to make some sacrifices as we become more and more multicultural across the board mm-hmm. in this age of globalization. Now, we've talked a lot in this uh, interview about the biblical foundations for racial reconciliation. You're a New Testament professor, Sidney. You're an Old Testament professor, Ken. And I think one of the great things about your book is the way in which you have developed uh, together a biblical theology for the post-racial church. And I think that's a wonderful gift that you offer. But you also do have some practical kind of suggestions and ideas and areas. Uh, And near the end of the book, you talk about four windows of opportunity. Now, we've touched on a few of those already. And if you want to say more about them, uh, that would be fine. Uh, interracial marriage. Be interested to know what you would say about that today as an issue. Should it be an issue? Is it an issue? Multi-ethnic worship. Ken, you've talked about some of the challenges there. Evangelism and missions. But there's another one that you mentioned there that's really a hot-button issue right now in our culture. And I want to ask each of you to comment on it, and that is immigration. Sydney? Well, uh you're right. It is a hot topic, especially here in Alabama. And um, uh, I have been actually gathering with some students who have been very curious about this issue. Um, how should the church respond? What is a Christian response? Um, is there anything objectionable about the laws that are being enforced here in Alabama? Um, we have been gathering to talk about those laws, to examine them. Uh, we actually had a law school student, Noel Bagwell, come in and explain the law to us. Um, we are also going to look at the economic side of this law. Um, what is being said is that uh, the, the laws are being driven by economics. It's not so much a racial issue at all. Um, it has to do with money. And so we're going to look at those dimensions. Um, the argument is that the immigrants cost a lot of money for them to stay here. And um, I would I would also say, well, we need to account for what they contribute as well. But those numbers are all under the radar, so it's going to be very difficult. But having gone through that, um, our students have a keen desire to examine Scripture and figure out exactly what our position ought to be as Christians. And from that point on, I think um, I want to lead some sessions where we're going to talk about creative ideas on how the Christian can remain faithful to God's desire to to include all and yet uh, simultaneously be faithful citizens. What does it mean to observe this law? Um, So we're gathering for prayer on a weekly basis. um, And Dr. George, I don't have uh, very good answers uh, at this point. I don't think it's a simple issue at all. Ken, anything you want to add to that? Well, yes, because both in the Old and New Testaments, we were speaking a moment ago about biblical theology or framework, we have, especially in the Old Testament, 
um, a place for compassion toward resident aliens, strangers, foreigners, and that our covenant uh, commitment to God will show itself in the way we treat others. And so there was that place for compassion. This was balanced with the responsibility of the immigrant. And so when I think of the immigration issue, I think of both compassion but also obligation on the part of those who migrate into the host country. If I am going to make a mistake, if I'm going to err, I think I would rather err on the side of compassion. I do not see that the church, I do not see uh, those of us who are leaders in the church functioning as federal agents. I think that anybody who comes and wants to receive uh, ministry, who who wants to be um, participants in the body of Christ, that we accept them and we minister to them the best we can. I I would say, if, if push were to come to shove, that I really believe that the United States will become brown, so to speak. I think it's inevitable. Uh, statisticians and those who study such things say it's the case. Well, that's an opportunity in my mind. When you think about that, the whole world's coming to us. They're at our doorstep. And that uh, browning of America will give us an opportunity, I think, to see for the most part, that culture is family-driven. Uh, they uh, exhibit uh, high moral uh, practices and expectations. And when we see the immorality and the deterioration of the value of life in our culture, it will be a welcome to see the uh, Latino or Hispanic community uh, become a very important voice for the church and in our society, I see as an opportunity. There was a day when my parents, who came through the the time of the Depression and Second World War, had a tendency to think in terms of color or ethnicity. For example, if someone of that older generation went to see a doctor, they would not just simply say, I saw my doctor and he says it's this problem and he prescribed some medication. It would be, well, my, I went to see my Jewish doctor or somebody who was helping in putting on your roof. And it wasn't just workers who were putting on your roof. It would be the Mexican workers who put on the roof. There is a tendency to see people in terms of that association. It will be a blessed day when we reach that point that we can just talk about persons without trying to attribute especially their ethnicity or race color. I've been having a conversation with Dr. Kenneth A. Matthews and Dr. M. Sidney Park, my wonderful Beeson colleagues, about a new book they have written, The Post-Racial Church, A Biblical Framework for Multi-Ethnic Reconciliation. It's published by Kriegel Publishers. It's available in paperback. I recommend it highly to you. 
It would be a wonderful Bible study for your church or small Bible study group, The Post-Racial Church by Ken Matthews and Sidney Park. Thank you, Sidney, and thank you, Ken. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.